Hi, it's your pal Steamed Hams. Join me every week on the Unforgettable Luncheon as we discuss topics in the nerd world like gaming, comics, cartoons, and whatever else may cross my mind. You can find me on the socials as SteamedHams81 on Twitch, Twitter, and Instagram, and YouTube. You can also find me as the Unforgettable Luncheon on Facebook. And check out Steamed Hams Merchatorium, the link to which will be in the description of this podcast. The Unforgettable Luncheon, nerd comedy at its okayest. Back in the wonderful 80s, the second generation of video game consoles was in full swing. The Atari 2600 ruled the roost. With cutting-edge graphics and sound, the squares and beeps made you feel like you were there. It had one button, one stick, and that's the way we liked it. But Atari, with its successes, was also responsible for the lows, such as the video game crash of 1983. You win some, you lose some, I guess. Today, we're talking about the history of Atari consoles on the Unforgettable Luncheon. Hi, it's your pal Steamed Hams. I hope you're ready for an unforgettable luncheon. Back in 1972, Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney formed Atari Incorporated. They had created the first successful coin-op video game, Pong. Good old Pong. Electronic table tennis. Two lines and a dot. Cutting-edge technology for the 70s. Good stuff. By 1975, Atari had made a Pong home game. But the engineers recognized that custom logic integrated into the circuit board, confining the console to a single game permanently, was not the best business plan. I mean, who's going to spend money and collect a bunch of consoles that each only play one game? You know, plus the cost of developing each console was about 100k in uh, 70s money. So then it becomes outdated by the competition, you know, in just a few months. So, again, not the best business plan. Now, they eventually figured out how to use programmable microprocessors that were eventually cost-effective enough to use. Now, we're not going to go into all that because we'll be here forever. I'm trying to keep your attention for crying out loud. Anyways, Bushnell brought uh, consultant Gene Landrum to determine requirements for the new console. He suggested a nice living room aesthetic for the 70s with a wood grain finish, you know, to match the wood paneling walls we all had in our houses in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the cartridges had to be idiot-proof, child-proof, and resistant to static electricity present in the average living room setting. Because yes, back in the 70s, that shag carpet was a real static danger, along with them corduroy pants. Cartridges were designed after another console called the Fairchild Channel F, which was the first console to use interchangeable ROM cartridges for the games. Atari needed some cashola to fund the development of its new console. So in 1976, Atari was sold to Warner Communications for a cool 28 million clams. Warner was looking to get into the video game racket to offset declining profits from its movie and music divisions. So it said, hey, these video games... They're making money. We want in. And you know, we can only make so many Dirty Harry movies. So Warner provided $120 million to fast-track the project. By 1977, the project, now branded the Atari VCS Video Computer System, 
and game development had begun. The console was announced at the 1977 Summer Consumer Electronics Show. Who remembers CES? That used to be cool. The Atari VCS, later renamed the Atari 2600, uh, launched in September 1977 at a retail price of $199, which is almost $1,000 in present-day money due to inflation. That's like two PS5s for an Atari, which I'm sure someone would actually pay these days. The console was shipped with two joysticks and the game Combat, which was actually a port of an Atari arcade game called Tank and another one called Air Battle. I believe if I remember right, it was Jet Fighter. No, Jet Fighter, because there's Air Sea Battle, was another one released at launch, uh, along with Basic Math, that riveting hardcore toughie called Basic Math. Blackjack, Indy 500, Starship, Street Racer, Surround, and Video Olympics. Now, fun fact, the Indy 500 game actually shipped with a steering wheel peripheral, which was much like its little freewheeling freewheeling paddles, except they could actually fully freewheel. Atari sold only 550,000 of the 800,000 manufactured, meaning they were going to need some help from Warner to cover losses for that first year. But in 1979, Atari sold 1 million units, especially during the holidays. The best time to sell toys. They did this even with competition from the Intellivision and the Magnavox Odyssey 2. Atari received a license from Taito to make a port of Space Invaders. Space Invaders ended up becoming the Atari's killer app, doubling sales exponentially over the next couple of years. In 1979, Activision was formed by former Atari employees, releasing games like Kaboom and Pitfall. They were sued by Atari for intellectual property infringement, but the two companies settled out of court, with Activision agreeing to pay a licensing fee to Atari, which set the standard for licensing by video game companies, which led to various third-party companies popping up. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute. You know, we'll get back to that. By 1982, Atari was selling 10 million units a year, with its best-selling game being Pac-Man. Another topic we're going to hit in a minute. Now, fun fact, the 2600 was actually my first game console. I mean, it technically belonged to my parents because I was all of three years old. But that was the first console I got to play on the regular. In fact, I finished my first game, Adventure, at age five. So yeah child gaming prodigy right here i mean i was always more of an indoor kid anyways in 1982 atari also released the atari 5200 their next gen console this console included a 360 degree non-centering joystick that was honestly just garbage a numeric keypad similar to the intellivision and start pause and reset buttons you know, I have a feeling my dumb ass would accidentally hit the reset button more than I care to admit. Now, the 5200 did not fare as well in the uh, as the 2600 commercially. Between competition from the ColecoVision and the fact that it had no backwards compatibility with the 2600's extensive library, the Intellivision 2 had actually released an adapter to play Atari 2600 games. Man, can you imagine that happening on like later consoles? Playing Mario on a Sega, or Sonic on a Super NES. Or playing a CDI game 
from Phillips without being a friggin' millionaire because that motherfucker was expensive. It's like seven hundred dollars in like nineties money. Whew. Ah, yeah, what are we millionaires? Now, most of the 5200's library were just updated versions of 2600 titles. So, great job, Atari. Thanks for giving us new shit. Now, we're actually going to pause on the consoles for a second here uh, to talk about third-party games, especially the uh, <clears throat> adult games. Yeah. While third-party games did account for half of all game sales by 1982, a portion of those games were by Mystique, who strictly made adult-oriented games. These were often games that were based on other non-porn games, so they were basically like a porn version of something that's completely normal, such as there was a porn version of Kaboom called Beat 'em and Eat 'em. I am not describing this game because it's just wrong. Um, and I just, I'm just not going to discuss most of these because they're just straight gross. The worst game, the one that was like caused the most uproar, was a game called Custer's Revenge, where you played Custer, uh, who was naked except for boots, a cowboy hat, and a raging mega huge erection. <laughs> the plot? You had to get past a field full of arrows to reach and have relations with a well-endowed naked Native American woman. I can't see where that game wasn't problematic. No! Now, Mystique went bye-bye prior to the great video game crash of 1983, but sold their rights to their spin-off company, Playaround. So adult games kept flowing, but not for very much longer. Those pretty much went away with the 8-bit era, and adult games made somewhat of a comeback in the Xbox PS2 era with games such as The Guy Game and, you know, Grand Theft Auto. Though in a very limited capacity, because, I mean, when you have the adults-only rating on a game, you can't buy it. There's no way to buy it, because you have to be, like, over 18 to buy it, no matter what. So those were basically considered, like, just, po you know, poison to the, uh, to the game. You know, you couldn't, to sales, you know? Now, also, speaking of games that were terrible... I'm going to talk about possibly the worst arcade port ever that came to the Atari. Pac-Man for the Atari 2600. Now, yes, a, a port from an arcade game to a console means some downgrading in graphics and sound. That's going to happen. Technological limitations. But Pac-Man was just a fucking insult. The maze was inverted with the warp tunnel top to bottom, not side to side. The maze was also in landscape, not portrait mode, which kind of threw people off. Um, also, only having just over half the pellets the arcade version had. The arcade version, I believe, has 244 per level, while the Atari version had 126. Uh, Pac-Man only faced right and left and would not turn top to bottom. So when he's moving up, he's still facing right or left, which made no sense. And the iconic... Waka waka sound was now a single tone clank sound. The bonus fruits, which, depending on what fruits you got, where you were at in the game, cost more points, uh, were replaced with a single value nondescript vitamin. So, yeah. The ghosts constantly flickered, you know, and that kind of messed with people's eyes while they were playing the game. You know, your eyes get tired and you're just like, you know what, I'm done. 
So, yeah. I mean, initial sales were high, and it became the 2600's best-selling game. But once people saw the quality, yeah, sales dipped. It did contribute heavily to the uh, great video game market crash of 1983. Now let's touch on that crash for a moment. The video game market took a shit in 1983. Between various consoles flooding the market, a lot of third-party publishers making low-quality shovelware, loss of confidence in the industry thanks to big-name failures like Pac-Man and E.T., and competition with home computers, the market just crashed. E.T. Oh, what a pile of crap that was. Granted, I never played it back then, um, and only played it through an emulator as an adult. Let's just say there's a reason why so many of them were buried in a New Mexico landfill. It's a textbook course in why you don't rush game development. The movie came out, and they had to rush the game to make it for the holiday season. You know, good things come to those who wait, guys. We learn that now. Now, U.S. companies were basically in the toilet at this point. This opened the door for Japanese companies to jump into the U.S. market. And the video game market made a recovery in 1985 with the debut of the Nintendo Entertainment System. But that's a story for another day. Now, in 1986, Atari released its next console, the Atari 7800. I'm sensing a pattern here. 26, 52, 78. Math. It's a good thing we played basic math, kids. They needed something to compete with the ColecoVision, which had arcade-quality games, basically. Uh, Now, fun fact, ColecoVision had their big licensing with Nintendo and had Donkey Kong, which was their killer app and just was outselling everything. Now, funny story, I actually had a ColecoVision Donkey Kong cartridge, and that thing worked perfectly in an Atari 2600, because for some reason, you could cross-play some games from other consoles back in the day. Yeah, they fixed that problem. Now, the game, the console was not uh, released in 1984 when it was announced, uh, mostly due to Warner t- selling Atari's consumer division to Jack Tramiel. So until things were, like, squared away with that, they kind of had to warehouse the 7800. Now, the console was released in May of 1986 for one easy payment of $79.95. Wait a minute. Newer consoles coming out cheaper and cheaper. Why are we not doing this today? Why did I just pay, like, $500-something for an Xbox? The hell, guys? Now, 13 games were announced to release for the 7800, but those games released so slowly. By the end of 1986, only 10 games were released for the 7800, compared to Sega's 20 games and Nintendo's 36 games that had been released in 1986. So, I mean, yeah, not much to play with. There wasn't much selection. So, I mean, why are you going to play a console that's only got a few games out? Now, Atari would end up selling 1 million of those consoles by 1988. Now, in 1992, Atari discontinued support for the 2600, 5200, 7800, and also the 8-bit family and ST uh, computers, which we didn't go into because we'd be here all day. It was truly the end of an era. 
Now, in 1989, Atari released the Lynx, their first handheld console, meant to compete with the Game Boy and Game Gear. It was a 16-bit color console that retailed for $179.99, because apparently they thought kids had millionaires for parents. It was fragile, had a crap battery, and was twice the price of the competing Game Boy, which you could throw against the wall and be just fine, and, you know, just had Tetris to it, so there you go. By 1995, total sales were just under 7 million units, versus the Game Boy's 16 million units in the same span. Now, the Lynx also had a wired connection system for multiplayer, which the Game Boy kind of had, but the Game Boy, you can only chain two Game Boys together. The Lynx could chain up to eight players at once. And it only had a single eight-player game, though. Todd's Adventure in Slime World. And we see why we've never heard of that. <laughs> now, the Lynx 2 was released in 1991 with a sleeker design better battery, and a lower price of $99, since it came with really no accessories. I mean, the Lynx went on until 1995, uh, but they kind of just discontinued support when they wanted to focus everything to the Jaguar. Now, in November 1993, the Jaguar was launched. It was the first 64-bit console. It cost a whopping $249.99 in 1993 dollars and was released in test markets in New York and San Francisco. Now, the test markets sold out, and there was just crazy advertising for it. And it was released nationwide in early 94. It sold about 100,000 units by the end of 1994. Now, it had a weak adoption rate due to poor quality of its library, and the library not exactly being very big. It didn't truly hit it big until the releases of Tempest 2000, Doom, and Wolfenstein 3D. Of course, its most successful uh, release of the first year was Alien vs. Predator, which I did actually get to play a couple times, like the little demo consoles they used to have at, like, Venture and Kmart, and I'm really aging myself by mentioning these stores. Um, it was kind of fun, but yeah, no, I, my parents weren't paying $250 for a fucking Jaguar. Now, if only they could have repeated that success maybe a dozen more times, they'd have been on easy street. But that wasn't the case. I mean, they had brand recognition with older gamers who came up with the old Ataris, but not the younger crowd who was more focused on the Nintendo, the Sega, um, the 3DO, which was another one of those, oh my god, my parents are fucking rich type of consoles. Now, um, a peripheral, the Jaguar CD, was released in 1995 to try to bolster the Jaguar. It cost itself, this is a peripheral, $149.99, and had a memory track uh, card to store high scores and save points. But it did little to save the Jaguar, and when you put it on the Jaguar, it made the Jaguar look like a toilet, literally. Uh, the console was abandoned by Atari in ni November 1995, and with that, Atari essentially left the console business. Uh, they are, you know, they still make games. They were sold to Hasbro in 98, I believe it was, if I remember right. I can't keep dates straight anymore. Um, and yeah, they haven't made a console since, except for the little flashback consoles you can buy at like Bed Bath and Beyond and, and Target. So. 
You know, Atari was a trailblazer in the console business. They created many of the things we know as normal today, like cartridges and third-party licensing. Without Atari, we wouldn't have gaming the way it is today. We've evolved from a joystick and a button, a square and some beeps, to the high-tech consoles with a bajillion buttons that we know and love today. Atari, we salute you. Well, that's it for another unforgettable luncheon. I hope a good time was had by all. You can find me on the social medias as SteamedHams81 on Twitch, Twitter, and Instagram, and also YouTube. And you can find me on Facebook as The Unforgettable Luncheon. And don't forget to check out my merch store, Steamed Ham's Merchtorium. The link will be in the description of this podcast. Now, you do get a 25% discount if you subscribe to my Twitch channel, and then you link your Twitch channel to the store, or your Twitch, uh, your Twitch username to the store. So, go for it. Join me next time, when the topic will be something nerdy.